Alright. Psalm. Psalm 11. This is a song of a song of trust. Right? So though friends counsel flight to the mountain countries, it is a traditional hideout to escape trouble. The innocent psalmist here refers confidence in God who protects those who seek asylum in the temple. Right. So we have this here. Very interesting. Um, some commentary from St. Augustine. And <clears throat> Let's look at this text itself, right? And it appears to be sung uh, against the heretics by rehearsing and exaggerating the sins of many in the church as if either all or the majority among themselves were righteous they strive to turn and snatch us away from the um the arms of the true mother true mother church affirming that christ is with them and warning us if with piety and earnestness that by passing over them we might go over to christ whom of course these heretics they falsely declare um they have right? and it's known that in prophecy Christ, among the many names in which notice of him is conveyed in allegory, it's also called the mountain. Um, we see, and we must accordingly answer to these people and say, I trust in the Lord. You know, how say ye to my soul, remove into the mountains as a sparrow. This is something we read yesterday in Psalm 10. Um, and to keep to the mountain wherein I trust, right? Where we should pass over to the Lord, right? Um, and if there is pride here, you have to say you are the mountains, right? And I, we have to be indeed this, the sparrow winged here with the powers and commandments of God. But we know the, these very things, they hinder our flight to the mountain, right? And placing our trust in, in um, proud men. So we have to have this house where we rest, right? Um, that we may trust in the Lord. For we see even the sparrow has found her house, and the Lord has become a refuge to the poor. So we must stay in confidence while, lest we, while we seek Christ among heretics, we lose him, right? So in the Lord I trust. How say ye to my soul, remove into the mountains of a sparrow. To continue, we have this, um, the sinners, these evil doers, they're trying to remove, um, the light of Christ, right? The light of the Lord, um, the the terrors of the, those who threaten, right? We have this verse here. See how the wicked string their bows, fit their arrows to the string, to shoot from the shadows at the upright of heart. Right? So these are the terrors of those who threaten us, touching sinners that we may pass over them to the righteous, right? So... The way they're trying to corrupt the good manners by evil communications, right? And of course, we have to keep saying, 
against these terrors in the Lord I trust. Moving forward, it's important to consider in this psalm what the suitableness that the moon signifies the church. Right, very interesting here. Um, so there, St. Augustine says, there's two probable opinions concerning the moon. So, which of these are true? It's either impossible or very difficult for man to decide. So when we see here, when we ask whence the moon has her light, right, some say it is her own, but that of the globe is half bright, right, it's half dark. So when she revolves around her own orbit, that part where she is bright, it gradually turns towards Earth. So as it may be seen by us, that therefore at first the appearance is as if she were horned, right? According to this opinion here, the moon's allegory signifies the church because in its spiritual part, the church is bright, right? But in its carnal part, it's dark. And sometimes the spiritual part is seen by good works, but sometimes it also lies hidden in the conscience, right? And is known God to God alone, since in the body alone it is seen by men, right? In this physical sense. But the other opinion, according to the other opinion, although the moon is also understood to be the church because she has no light of her own, but is lighted by the only begotten Son of God, right? Who in, of course, in places of scripture is allegorically called the Son. And, of course, whom certain heretics, being ignorant of, right? And are not able to discern him, endeavor to turn away the minds of the simple to this corporeal and visible Son, which is the common light of flesh of men and flies, right? And see, so they do so to pervert. Know that they cannot behold the mind of the inner truth of the, the inner light of the truth, right? And will not be content with the simple Catholic faith, which is only safety um, to others, right? Um, to hear whichever these two opinions be true, the moon in allegory is fitly understood as the church, or, you know, in difficulties, these are troublesome. Um, there either be no satisfaction or leisure to exercise the mind, right? And the mind itself, it cannot be capable of it with a sufficient regard to the moon with ordinary eyes. Um, or it may be obscure causes, right? But with all these men to perceive her increasings and fullness and wand, if she wanes to the end, she may be renewed. So even into this rude multitude, she sets forth the image of the church, right? The moon does. In, the res in which the resurrection of the dead is believed. So we have this here also. Again. Um, going over how the Lord says here in um, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. God's eyes keep careful watch. They test the children of Adam. Right? The Lord is in the holy temple. Right? So, we see um, Paul says in Corinthians, For the temple 
God is holy, which temple you are, right, in Corinthians. Now, if any man shall violate the temple of God, him shall God destroy. So he who violates the temple of God violates unity, for holds not the head from which the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by which every joint supplies according to the working after the measure of every part makes a crease of the body to edifying itself in love. To the Lord is in his holy temple, which consists of his many members, right, fulfilling each of his own separate duties by love built into one building. So which temple he violates for the sake of his own a preeminence separates himself from the Catholic society, right? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord, his seat is in heaven. So if you take heaven to be the just man, as you take the earth to be the sinner, whom it was said, earth you are, and into earth you shall go, in Genesis, right? The words we have here, the Lord is in his holy temple. We will understand that to be repeated while it is said, the Lord seat is in heaven right interesting things there again just trusting the lord while these um threats these terrors are happening to us and um remembering that he's with us right he's in his holy temple and we can find him there without any questions before we move on to the gospel Oh, and we get this beautiful verse. The Lord is just and loves his just deeds. The upright will see his face. We know that the Lord is just. He is with us. So today we have Luke chapter 9. The mission of the twelve. He summoned the twelve and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases and he sent them to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. He said to them, Take note, take nothing for the journey, neither walking stick nor sack food, nor, nor sack nor food nor money, and let no one take a second tunic. Whatever house you enter, stay there and leave from there. And as for those who do not welcome you when you leave that town, shake the dust from your feet in the testimony against them. Then they set out and went from village to village, proclaiming the good news and curing Jesus, curing Jesus everywhere. First Hello. What was that? You meant diseases, right? Yeah, diseases. Curing diseases everywhere. Sorry about that. <laughs> so we have this here. Um, the twelve continue Jesus' kingdom mission. And so right here, this passage, of course, again, it's based on Mark. Luke is using Mark as a source. So it must be um 
we're, we're reading this in um as we had just read Luke um we went over Luke seven we read Luke eight so it's kind of a conjunction right and so it is the culmination of this so we learned in seven and eight in chapter seven and eight we learned the nature of Jesus' kingdom mission in which the twelve now share here right so we're seeing in since chapter six and we'll see all the way to sixteen Luke narrated the er, narrates the selection of the twelve right who now experienced the first-hand power of Jesus' proclamation and healing. So with the starkness of their provisions and their dependence on God, its providence are in focus here, right? And we see this um, rejection shown in Jesus, right? It's also in store for those who sent by are sent by Jesus, this rejection, right? And it's interesting to have this word, um, everywhere at the end of verse 6 so this is a looking theme of universalism and it sounds forth here so you notice that he has a few themes right and it's important to keep an eye out for that next we have um we have herod's opinion of jesus herod the tetrarch heard about all that was happening and he was greatly perplexed because some were saying john has been raised from the dead and others were saying elijah elijah has appeared still others one of the ancient prophets has arisen but herod said john i beheaded who then is this about whom i hear such things and he kept trying to see him so we see here and we'll see we'll continue seeing um this section functions as a liter literary and theological switching station between Jesus' Galilean ministry and also his journey um, to Jerusalem. And we'll see that at the end of the chapter. Right, so here, by means of which um, Luke switches, the focus by which one views the familiar themes of Jesus' Galilean ministry, um, We'll see Jesus' power over evil and his status as God's son, discipleship, um, position, food, right, all these things. Um, it's really the fate of Jesus is forerunning, um, is his fate and that of his disciples, right? So, kind of here, this is the meat of the sandwich. It's formed by sending out the twelve. And their return, we'll see, um, following their return of the disciples. Um, so really, the just as the mission of John the Baptist, Jesus met with opposition, so that will the church. Right? In Luke's gospel, Herod Antipas is a hostile to both John and Jesus. We see that here, right? And it's interesting, we have this all that had happened, right? So, this is Luke's way of summarizing um, chapters 4 to 9. The 12, of course, who had Jesus hidden out, and Jesus are in view here. We have this question who is this? 
with this question, Knuckles Those Who, chapter 5, 7, and 8, and it serves to summarize chapters 4 to 9. And so we'll see here as we continue to read, Luke will kind of introduce um, the cross as an essential and new ingredient to an answer. Right, so Luke will um, there use C of Herod's desire to see Jesus, right? We saw the scene. And Herod's curiosity to be contrasted, as we will see later in chapter 23, um, uh, with those who are open to God's first scene, those who are open to seeing God's um, revelation in Jesus' death on the cross. Now we have here um, the return of the twelve and the feeding of the five thousand. When the apostles returned, they explained to him what they have done. He took them and withdrew in private to a town called Bethsaida. The crowds, meanwhile, learned of this and followed him. He received them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God, and he healed those who needed to be cured. As the day was drawing to a close, the twelve approached him and said, Dismiss the crowd so that they can go to the surrounding villages and farms and growing lodges and provisions, for we are in a deserted place here. He said to them, Give them some food yourselves. They replied, Five loaves and two fish are all we have, unless we ourselves go and buy food for all these people. Now the men there numbered about five thousand. And he said to his disciples, Have them sit down in groups about fifty. They did so, made them sit down. Then taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looking up to heaven, he said, The blessing over them broke them, and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. They all ate and were satisfied. And when the leftover fragrance picked up, they filled the twelve with their baskets. So we have here Jesus' gift of food. It's linked to his cross, right? So Jesus gives his disciples, who have just returned from preaching and curing God's people, a new charge. They are to feed reconstituted Israel with the Eucharist, which we have this preaching about the God, about the kingdom of God. And healing, it summarizes Jesus' Galilean ministry. And we have here again, if you remember, the Lucan theme of food. To this food theme of Luke, it reoccurs here. And again, in chapters 4 and 9, we have this motif. It's largely surfaced in stories dealing with Joyce, Jesus' joyful table fellowship with sinners, right? So here we have the um, further dimension, it shines forth. In Jesus' kingdom mission, God is fulfilling the promises of feeding his hungry creation. When we see this in um, Isaiah. And we have these words here, blessed, broke, gave, right? And these words match almost verbatim those in the Luke account of the institution of the Eucharist, as we'll see in Luke 10, 22. In the Emmaus story, so we'll see in 24. Um, and so Luke, of all the evangelists, it immediately links this feeding account with Jesus' prediction of his passion and his instructions about bearing one's cross daily, as we saw in chapter 9. And so to celebrate the Eucharist in memory of Jesus, and we'll see, and of course, in chapter 22, it is to not 
only share his mission, but also his dedication, destiny, symbolized by the cross. Right. So going further, we have here Peter's confession about Jesus. And Uh, yeah, we have a little a chunk here. Peter's confession about Jesus. Once Jesus was praying in solitude and the disciples were with him, he asked them, Who do the crowd say that I am? They said in reply, John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others, one of the ancient prophets has risen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Peter said in reply, The Messiah of God. He rebuked them and directed them not to tell this to anyone. The first prediction of the passion he said the son of man must suffer greatly and be rejected by the elders the chief priests and the scribes and be killed on the third day and be raised the conditions of discipleship then he said to all if anyone wishes to come after me he must deny himself and take his cross daily and follow me whoever wishes to save his life will lose it and whoever loses his life for my sake will save it what profit is there for one who is to gain the whole world, yet lose or forfeit himself? Whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. So we have here the cross in the lives of the Messiah and his disciples, right? So here, interesting enough, Mark does not use, um, I mean, Luke doesn't use Mark's account from this of six of chapter six, eight, but he, the reason for this great omission stem from his own theology theology of when god's word goes to the gentiles of clean and unclean and of food so really in this passage the theme of opposition to jesus and disciples seen in chapters four to nine it takes on a new perspective of that of the cross so luke's reference here at jesus prayer at jesus praying right indicates that something very important theologically is about to occur so these answers occur or concur with those given in um, Herod, as Herod gave when he, had, he asked this question, who do you say I am, right? We see this, um, the Christ of God, Peter is the spokesperson of the disciples, he says this, right? And here in the Lucan story line, Peter's answer, their confession, um, as um, it maybe seen or was here in my Bible, confession is a misleading term and is more Mathean than Lucan, actually. Interesting. So we see here uh, Peter's answer. It's dependent on what he has seen Jesus do and what he himself has done in Jesus' name, right? So thus, Peter's answer focuses on Jesus' power to save needy people from the forces of evil. So that here, this is a dimension of Jesus' ministry highlighted in Peter's answer. It's um, corroborated by the immediate context 
which modifies the understanding of Christ and God, right, by reference to Jesus' um, rejection, we saw in um, chapters 9, and we'll see again later, and we'll see again in chapter 23, where he, there, the same title is used with reference to Jesus' power to save others. Next, we have um, the transfiguration of Jesus. About eight days after he said this, he took Peter, John, and James and went to the mountain to pray. While he was praying, the face changed, his face changed in appearance, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were conversing with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his exodus that he was going to accomplish in Jerusalem. Peter and his companions had been overcome by sleep, but becoming fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As they were about to part from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, is it good that we are here? Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. But he did not know what he was saying. While he was still speaking, a cloud overcame and cast a shadow over them. They became frightened when they entered the cloud. Then from the cloud came a voice that said, This is my chosen son. Listen to him. After the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. They fell silent and did not at that time tell anyone what they had seen. So, of course, here, um, the beautiful trans tra transfiguration of Jesus, right? So, here, Luke identifies the subject um, of this conversation as the exodus of Jesus, right? And we see this in verse 31, um, who appeared in glory and spoke of his exodus, right? So, this conversation the exodus of Jesus, and it's a reference to his death, his resurrection, and his ascension, right, that will take place in Jerusalem, the city of destiny. And if you remember, um, this was mentioned when, I think in chapter 7, when he arrived um, at Jerusalem, and his city of destiny, um, and he has his destiny here, right? And so here in the mention of Exodus, it's also to call to mind the Israelite Exodus from Egypt to the Promised Land, of course. Right. And so we have this glory here that's proper to God and here is attributed to Jesus, of course. Jesus is God, and that's what's happening here. And we have this um, verse 33, as they were about to part from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, is it good that we are here? Let us make three tents. Here, these three tents, it's a possible allusion to the Feast of the Tabernacles. Right? Peter may be likening this joy on this occasion of the Transfiguration to the joyful celebration of this harvest festival. So, through in a um, celebration, right? And... Going further, we have this heavenly voice, right? Um, so like the heavenly voice that identified Jesus at his baptism prior to his Galilean ministry, here we have before the journey, the city of destiny begun, 
and the heaven rejoice again identifies Jesus as son. I listen to him. There's two representatives of Israel of the old part, right? And Jesus is left alone as a teacher whose words must be heeded. So now we're, we're listening to Jesus here. So now, further we have the healing of a boy with a demon. On the next day, when it came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him. There was a man in the crowd who cried out, Teacher, I beg you, look at my son. He is my only child. For spirit seizes him until he foams at the mouth. It releases him only with difficulty, wearing him out. I beg you. I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus said in reply, O faithless and perseverance generation, how long will I be with you and you endure you? Bring your son here. As he was coming forward, the demon threw him to the ground in cold vision. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and returned him to his father. And all were astonished by the majesty of God. So we have these two incidents, and they focus on the attitudes that are opposed to this Christian discipleship, right? Rivalry and, um, oh, we'll see that also coming up. Um, but here, of course, um, yeah, we must have faith, right? And, um, Jesus points this out. Faithless and preserved generation, how long will I be here with you and endure you? Jesus is here, then you must have this faith, right? So that's kind of what he's talking about here. Going forward, we have um the second prediction of the passion. While they were all amazed at his every deed, he said to his disciples, Pay attention to what I am telling you. The Son of Man is to be handed over to men, but they did not understand the saying. His meaning was hidden from them so that they should not understand it. They were afraid to ask him about this saying. The greatest in the kingdom. An argument arose again among the disciples about which of them was the greatest. Jesus realized the intention of their hearts and took a child and placed it by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me, the one who sent me, receives the one that sent me. For the one who is least among all of you is the one who is greatest. Another exorcist. Then John said in reply, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to prevent him because he does not follow in our company. Jesus said to him, Do not prevent him, for whoever is not against you is for you. Now we have this um, journey to Jerusalem, right? So Luke's travel narrative. Here, very interesting, we'll unpack all of this. So, this is a famous story of James, John, um, of the zeal of James and John. And they want to call down fire from heaven upon the Samaritan people. And then Jean then we have Jesus' response to that zeal when he teaches them about the cost of discipleship. So here we have. When the days 
drew near for him to be received up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he set his messengers ahead of him, who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him. But the people who would not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem, and when his disciples James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to bid fire come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. As they were going along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. But he said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And the other said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those in my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. So there's a lot going on in this passage, right? And so there's some elements to highlight. First, there's the Luke's anticipation of Jesus' eventual passion right death and resurrection and ascension to heaven so when it says here the days grow near for him to be received up notice here that luke always has his eyes ultimately on the end of his gospel which is going to be jesus ascending into heaven so it's not just the cross it's not even just the resurrection it's about him being taken up into heaven and that is the cultivation of jesus exodus that he's going to accomplish in jerusalem it's a very central feature for Luke's gospel. And a second element we have here is Jesus setting his face to Jerusalem or the way to Jerusalem, right? And interestingly enough, scholars have pointed this out so throughout Luke's gospel from Luke 9 all the way to 19. It's this long section all the way to Jerusalem. So the Greek word for way is hodos and it means a path or way and it's important for Luke for two reasons. One, it calls to mind the ex hodos, right? The exodus from Egypt. Of course it was made a path out of Egypt into the promised land, but it's also important because in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus talks about his own ex hodos, right? In chapter nine, the transfiguration. Oh we just read that. <laughs> Um, yeah, the transfiguration that he's going to accomplish in Jerusalem. So Jesus is a new Moses, right? And we know this, he, who's come to bring about a new exodus. But unlike the first exodus, which began in Egypt and ended in Jerusalem with the building of the temple in this city, the new exodus is going to begin in Jerusalem and then end when Jesus is taken to heaven. So ultimately, so the ultimate destination destination is the heavenly kingdom in heaven with the father so here's chapter 9 it marks a turning point in the gospel of luke where jesus sets his face towards the cross and the resurrection and ascension in his new exodus so knowing all this context right luke is presuming that we know a little bit of geography and we know that the first eight chapters of the gospel have been taking place in galilee in the north now Jesus has gone to the south, to Judea, to the capital 
of which is Jerusalem. And in order to do that, he's going to pass through the middle of the section of the Holy Land, which where the Samaritans dwell in the land of Samaria, the remnants of the northern kingdom of Israel before it was decimated by the Assyrians. And so we get another encounter with the Samaritans in the Gospel of Luke, which are pretty prominent, right, in the Gospel of Luke. So, understanding who they are, most people are, are familiar with the fact that the Samaritans um, and Jews didn't like each other in 1st century AD. And to this day, there's a still a very small group of Samaritans left in the northern part of the Holy Land. And they have a shrine by Mount Gerizim. And they accept the first books of the Jewish Bible as scripture. And they read their own version of them, but they have them as a copy. And they sacrifice, they offer sacrifice to the Lord, the God of Israel. They consider themselves as a part of the people of the Lord, or of God, right? And so in 1st century AD, the Samaritans themselves are a part of God's people. Um, and they're this large group, they were influential, they were very well widely disliked because of this alternative temple they had set up in Mount Gerizim, right? And going further, so there's this tension and conflict, like I said, between the Jews and Samaritans, all the way down to Jesus' day, which we don't see here clearly in Luke's account. Um, this account, it doesn't lay it at all out right but if um we will see in uh chapter four of john jesus meets a samaritan woman and the samaritan woman says to him why are you talking to me you're a jew i'm a samaritan and john um tells us the jews and the samaritans had no dealings with one another so in this case what's happened geographically jesus and his apostles have to pass through villages of samaria and so when they get into this Samaritan village, the apostles go ahead and, um, to make ready for him, but the people of the village won't receive Jesus. Why? Because his face was set towards Jerusalem. Now, what does this mean? Well, once he reveals his destination is the alternative temple city to Jerusalem, right? They don't want anything to do with him. They hate Jerusalem. As much as, um, they dislike Jews, they really hate Jerusalem. Now, everything here, um, so, we know now that Jews and Samaritans didn't like each other. Um, but it's helpful for one little element of context, also what Luke's describing here. So, according to Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, right? Not only do the Jews and Samaritans not like each other, but in the first century AD, in the early decades of the first century shortly before Jesus' public ministry began there had begun some incidents conflicts right with the samaritans um that stirred up dislike for them so um josephus tells us that during the feast of the passover some samaritans snuck into the temple and put human bones inside of the temple during the passover and that would have defiled the temple because it was of course a ritual purity defilement not to come in contact with a corpse, as we know, as we are reading Leviticus, right? And so, 
you, we can imagine the feeling of the Jews when they found this out about a Samaritan plotting to defile the temple during Passover. Right. So, we have this here. Um, so, when the, the apostles are passing through Samaria, the Samarians refuse to receive Jesus. This makes sense, right? Um, this conflict. But when the apostles react by wanting to destroy the Samaritans, it also makes sense in a first century Jewish context, right? So, with this in mind, they're going to they're going through the Samaritans refuse to receive them. And so James and John hear of it, and they say these words: "Lord, do you want us to bid fire come down from heaven and consume them?" No, a couple of things, right? We see the zeal of James and John. They're obviously on fire for Jesus and ready to call down fire from heaven. Um, very interesting if you're a Jew at this time, of course, you're gonna, and you think about fire falling from heaven. Um, what you're going to think of is Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Genesis 19, God rains down fire from heaven upon the Sodomites as a way of an acting judgment, right? He decimates their city. So we can see that John's and Jane, by wanting to call down fire from heaven, are saying that the Samaritans aren't people whom we happen to disagree with. They are wicked and they are deserve to be destroyed. Um, so John and James, they know the Bible and calling from um, other Old Testament readings too. They know the Old Testament. So what does this reveal about their thinking about the Old Testament precedent? Right, so it's simple. They see Jesus either as a new Elijah um, or Elisha, which was Elijah's successor, or kind of a new Elijah, right? He's a prophet who has come into the world to bring the word of God, and just like the Old Testament prophets, Elijah, Elisha, and show no mercy to their enemies. And we see that Elijah calls down fire from heaven. Elisha six a bear on these um, boys who are mocking him and the bear mauls them. These are violent stories from Old Testament. So this is kind of the framework that James, James and John are working with, right? And so they see these counterparts, the Samaritans, who they consider enemies. It's natural for them to think of Jesus, who's kind of this new Elisha, right? This new prophet, successor to John the Baptist, to say, Hey, you want us to call down the fires from heaven to consume them and destroy them? They are our enemies. But Jesus is not just a new Elijah or Elisha. He's a new and greater prophet and he has a different message for them, right? So he turns to them and rebukes them. Because this is chapter 9 of Luke, right? And what has Jesus said to his apostles in chapter 6? So remember in the sermon on the side of the mountain, um, what is he calling to do to their enemies? Calling to love. His message is going to be love your enemies. Um, and Paul will, St. Paul will reiterate this in Romans. When you do love your enemies, it's like pouring heaps of burning coal on their heads. Right? So you're still going to get to burn them up, but it's just through charity and not through fire from heaven. Right? It's the fire from heaven of the Holy Spirit that consumes them, hopefully. So in this case, Jesus rebukes the apostles. He's not going to replicate what Elijah and Elisha did to their enemies in the Old Testament. So it's a very interesting type of typology. And we'll finish there since already 
kind of over time, and I know um, we have places to be, I'm sure. Thank you guys so much for coming. If you have any questions, please let me know. Um, there's so much more I wanted to get to there. Oh, that's actually so good. But as we know, we must love our enemies. Pray for them and have charity. So thank you guys so much for coming. I'm so sorry that um, we got a little delayed there. I appreciate you all being here.